how can we land on very small spaces throughout the globe, coalesce our force, generate combat power, deliver effects against an adversary, return, collapse, and then go on to the next location before the adversary can hold that location accountable. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vagamaradian. Two weeks ago, the Big Air Force convened in Denver to launch their biggest reorganization in a generation to better prepare for great power conflict. We had interviews with the chief and the secretary on that issue. This week, we hear from the commander of the U.S. Air Force Special Operations Command, Lieutenant General Tony Barnfind, on how he's stepping up his command's great power game while also executing today's missions and preparing for the future from the sidelines of the Special Air Warfare Symposium in Florida. And it's all brought to you by GE. The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com XA100. And the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. JJ, what's in the news of the week on All Wings Considered? Bago, the Army National Guard has idled its Apache fleet for a safety stand-down after two crashes in two weeks, one of which was a double fatality. It's expected the birds will be back in the air following the review. It's not the kind of thing where there's a lengthy investigation phase. Singapore, one of the few customers for the F-35B variant, is going to order 8A models to go with them. They'll get at the end of the line, however long that line is getting to be. As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. Turkey can fly. The Khan, Ankara's new high-end indigenous fighter, made its first flight less than a year after its rollout. Powered, by the way, by a couple of GE F-110s. How fast is your jet? Boeing says the not-to-exceed speed of its F-15EX in a clean configuration is right around Mach 2.5. That's a little over 1,900 miles per hour. It had been reported as Mach 2.9, but they walked that back subsequently. So it's in there someplace. Vago, you'll remember the F-15A Streak Eagle, which set a bunch of time-to-altitude records early in the F-15's life, and they used time-to-climb so as not to reveal the actual level flight top speed. And Hungary, as part of acceding to Sweden's admission to NATO, gets four more Saab Gripens to go with its existing 14. Vago? I want to first give you full 10 points on sticking the con landing. That was good. I didn't see that coming, so very well played. I appreciate time to climb as well, and I think that pretty much almost everybody was doing it that way back then, right, in order to sort of mask the straight line speed. I remember the same sort of stuff when it came to the MiG-25, right? They did, and we didn't really know how fast it went until somebody flew it to Hakodate Airfield in Japan and gave us one. Yeah, a guy named Belenko, as I... Viktor uh, Ivanovich Belenko, yes. Uh, as I recall correctly, uh, in the deep annals of trivia. And I want to also make a correction. I think on Sunday's show, I said that Hungary was getting 18 aircraft. That is not correct. The combination of the 14 existing jets plus the four brings the Hungarian fleet up to 18 aircraft. So I apologize for having made that misstep. Before we uh, get to our interview with the good general, interesting that... The buy for Singapore was Bravos, 
right? It makes sense if you're worried you're an island nation, you're worried about folks maybe taking out your runways, but also then being a little bit more deployable worldwide. What was the justification, though, for making the step to the Alpha, right? Because that's a kind of a very interesting split fleet then they would have. They haven't said publicly why that is, but you can think of a few reasons beyond interoperability. They may simply want to train with a different aircraft or have ones with longer legs than the Bravo for various missions. And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Technology Report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. We're just camelling here. And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome to the program Lieutenant General Tony Barenfeind, who is the commander of the United States Air Force Special Operations Command, otherwise known universally as AFSOC, who joins us as the Air Commandos this year play host to the Special Air Warfare Symposium in sunny Fort Walton Beach right there near Hurlburt, which is one of the centers for Air Force greatness. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. No, hey, uh, Vago, JJ, thank you so much for allowing me to join and look forward to the conversation today and just appreciate uh, what uh, you as teammates do for the entire SOCOM and AFSOC formation. Appreciate the kind words, sir. I want to start off with the re-optimization for great power competition. When you were in Denver, uh, you were talking about it. And indeed, uh, there are a couple of commands that were leading the Air Force, right? Adopting some of the new focus on great power competition. And the challenge is really most profound in some respects for commands like AFSOC, where you have a very real world mission you guys are executing worldwide, right? The burden did not necessarily lighten that dramatically. Still, a lot of operations worldwide, whether it's continuing the fight against violent extremists, the counter-ISIS campaign now, uh, new taskings, for example, off the Horn of Africa as Houthis uh, threaten shipping, and you guys are in the midst of all of that. Talk to us a little bit about the refocus to great power competition. The role of AFSOC, right? I think many in the audience understand what you do in a counter-terror perspective. What's the role of AFSOC in great power competition? And how are you refocusing your command on that mission? And what is the re-optimization, the broader plan that the secretary uh, and the chief unveiled in Denver impact you guys? Yeah, I I think that's a great question. Thanks for the opportunity to weigh in on that. And as uh, Thankfully, here at the Special Air Warfare Symposium, we just finished with the panel with uh, Secretary Mayer, Assistant Secretary of Defense Solik, and General Fenton, Commander of SOCOM. And it, it reminds us again that you know modern-day U.S. special operations was actually born out of great power competition, all the way back to World War II in that fight, then into the you know, the counter-Soviet Union fights um, you know in the uh, 60s and 70s. And so we've grown up in that. And while we've focused on countering violent extremist organization, counterterrorism over the last two decades, we're really returning to our roots for those deterrent values that we can bring forward in support of the joint force. And, you know, while we were very effective in and are effective in those countering violent extremist organizations and counterterrorism operations, we also have to acknowledge that if the nation needs us to be prepared against a peer adversary, that there is a focus and training required as we uh, move forward. 
And while I'm proud of what our air commandos did in the counterterrorism, counterviolent extremist organizations fight over the last two decades, we really optimized ourselves for that fight with very small teams. And we became very efficient as we went right. forward as an effect. But as we go towards great power competition, we know that that's going to be a different training requirement. At the end of the day, our adversaries in a counterterrorism fight were not tactically challenging. Strategically challenging, yes, but tactically challenging not. But against a peer adversary who can also shoot, move, and communicate, see our operations, we have to fundamentally prepare our forces differently. And so I think where um, Secretary Kendall has given us the North Star and Chief Alvin has also doubled down on that North Star, how do we re-optimize our forces for the future for that great power competition? It's going to be very productive for AFSOC as we move forward. And as you highlighted, we have already started moving out in several of those areas. An example was what we were calling, you know, a few months ago as power projection wings of how our wings can organize, train, equip, and move forward and provide those capabilities that the nation needs as a whole wing and not just small teams. The Air Force is moving forward with deployable combat wings, really the same construct that we're now going to you know, align ourselves to the Air Force as it goes forward. And additionally, also the training. As we looked, as I said, not tactically challenging against the adversaries and counterterrorism, counterviolent extremist organizations, but against a peer adversary will absolutely be tactically challenging. And we had already started like, hey, how? let's get our forces back into high-end training where the adversary has a clear and distinct capability and a boat and how we respond to that. And so, you know, leaning into those high-end exercises, and I'm very excited where Secretary Kendall and Chief Alvin are talking about those large-scale exercises. How do we return to a lot of the exercises we were very comfortable in the 90s with having hundreds of aircraft in the air? And how do we conduct that orchestration to deliver the effect the joint force needs? And then finally, in all of it, is an acknowledgement that in future war fighting, we're not going to have the luxuries of the last two decades of almost perfect communication systems, where if you were downrange and you were unsure of a certain situation, you normally had some sort of communication systems you could dial back to and get information. We think in future war fighting, with against a peer adversary, the electromagnetic spectrum is going to be a contested space. And not only do we need to develop capabilities to succeed in that contested space, but we also have to prepare our forces through a concept that's well known of mission command of you've got your mission, you've got the intent, move out and draw fire to you know keep the adversary on their toes. And so I'm very excited that our air commandos are really uh, embracing the concept of mission command and how we continue to develop them to give us the broad spectrum of opportunity moving forward. Let's follow up on those large-scale exercises for a moment. When the Air Force used to conduct those back in the Cold War, the force was a lot larger and the op tempo was a lot lower. As Vago noted, you're still very busy despite the end of the Iraq and Afghanistan missions. AFSOC also has a large peacetime role, training allies and partners. Is AFSOC resourced properly to conduct ongoing operations and prepare for great power competition and do large-scale exercises and engage with allies to prepare them for the future? 
A couple things. I mean, I, I, that question almost feels like it should be in front of Congress. <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, I will tell you with our available resources, it all comes down to prioritization. Where do we put the resources as it moves forward? And that every commander of every organization has to fundamentally balance what is, I would call, the readiness decisions versus modernization decisions. And so, you know, we at AFSOC have made some decisions over the last couple of budget cycles say, hey, we need to increase our readiness capability, bring a little bit more money into flying hours, a little bit more money into our exercise program, but also, you know, make sure we're continuing to partner forward on those key modernization capabilities that we need in a few years. And I will tell you right now that we are making that balance in a risk-informed manner. We also benefit greatly you know, to the point of you know, allies and partners. To me, they are a force multiplier. So it's not a cost driver for our allies and partners. It's a force multiplier because to adversaries that where they only understand strength, when they look across their borders and see several, if not dozens of allies linked arm in arm that are jointly interoperable, that delivers a capability for our nation to deter our adversaries. And I see that as actually, like I said, a force multiplier. And now for the large scale exercises, we do, you know, that'll be a question for the Air Force to work through is where do we make the prioritization and find those resources for those large scale exercises? And I think that as long as we can align ourselves with the future and have a good conversation of the requirements, we will be able to achieve the effects we need to meet Secretary Kendall and Chief Alban's vision. You mentioned Congress there, and right now they're not hurrying to get a budget, I think would be a mild way to say it. You have the prospect of continuing resolutions. How much does that hurt your ability to operate around the world and keep your people ready? We truly appreciate uh, the congressional focus and the oversight they provide and the support that our congressional teammates provide to our entire SOCOM and AFSOC and Air Force formations. But, you know, I do need to reinforce that when we're under continuing resolutions, it's a couple aspects. One is we've got key new programs that need to start and with the approval of Congress. And when we are on that continuing resolution, we delay the start of those key modernization programs. We also, in the continuing resolution, are limiting how much money we're executing because we're just unsure of what is going to be approved or not approved. And that tends to lead to an under-execution which then once the budget is approved, we have to react to uh, once developed. And so the sooner we can get a budget that Congress has given us their guidance and authorization and appropriation for, the better off we are as a military force to move forward. And then the final thing is, is just the continuing impact to our personnel as we continue to have those conversations. While we've been very successful in a discussion of a government shutdown, over the years of not having the government shut down, that is an added stress to our force. And many a times, you know, going, okay, you know, in a couple of weeks, I may or may not have a paycheck going, you know, forward. And having that conversation is, is always an added stress. And when we have that budget, that's a stress we can put behind us so that we can take best care of our force. 
I think everybody has their fingers crossed, although I think everybody takes your point, right? It hasn't happened yet, but it's still kind of a stress moment for everybody because the fact that it didn't happen in the past doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. Let me take you to lessons learned from the Ukraine war. Russia's war on Ukraine is universally being studied, and the Ukrainians have used extremely novel air, land, sea capabilities and spec ops capabilities across all domains, cyber, as well as even undersea. What are some of the lessons you're drawing from this war now that's really entering its 11th year. And how many of these lessons are applicable, sir, to the Indo-Pacific where ranges are different, right? I mean, you're working some of these basing constructs because of actual combat employment, the need to move under intense fire at long ranges. What are the bigger lessons you're learning that are shaping the command as you, you know, because you're trying to map capabilities, not just for tomorrow, but 10 years from now? No, that's an outstanding question. And I really enjoy the question because it's who is learning the lessons from Ukraine? Because it's not only us at the strategic level, our government is learning lessons, but also our adversaries. And so I think it's, you know, from an adversary perspective, not only is Russia watching how, you know, we as the United States react, but there's other adversaries that are also saying how they react. And I think it just doubles down again, from my perspective, now flipping to our lessons learned is the true value of our allies and partners that with like-minded democratic nations, when we link arms together to protect the international norm, I think that's a win-win. And it pauses nations that don't have that appreciation for democratic values or the international norms to pause before they act as they move forward. And so from that strategic aspect, I think you know many are watching the Ukrainian development as it rolls out. At the tactical level, though, I think it does show us, I think many have opined, is the democratization of technology. Where you know a lot of the technological advancements are more, I would say, lower tech capabilities, but at higher quantities. You look at a lot of the drone technologies, countering uh, UAS technologies, the um, one-way attack systems, and you know as all of those come forward, acknowledging that there is a different way of warfare that we have to appreciate. And then finally, is it's reaffirming. What we knew back in the 80s when we were um, countering the Soviet Union is the importance of the electromagnetic spectrum. And I truly believe in my heart that in great power competition, the nation that controls the electromagnetic spectrum has a clear advantage in the follow-on war fighting. And we're seeing that in space in the Ukrainian conflict. And so that's informing our way forward as we will likely return to some of the capabilities with new technology and new focus to drive us into the future in AFSOC. And as AFSOC gets ready for great power conflict, whether that's with Russia or China, what are the new capabilities that you need that you don't currently have? Well, a lot of this, too, is innovating what we have to be more applicable. Um, You know, like dovetailing in on electromagnetic spectrum, we have some small scale capabilities of that. But bluntly put, for two decades, we had an adversary that was just not in the electromagnetic spectrum space. So we we took some risk in that area. But we're even seeing not only in Ukraine, but in other places in the Middle East where it's becoming much cheaper to challenge the electromagnetic spectrum. And so that's an area we're going to focus in as we go forward is how can we not only develop the equipment we need both on and off border platforms, whether it be space-based, cyberspace, air-based, terrestrial-based, what's the equipment we need? Second thing is, what is the training we need? 
to understand and control the electromagnetic spectrum is a very unique training skill set. And so how do we train our teammates to be very adept in that area? And then finally is investing in the personnel that are those experts in that area that will be key teammates to uh, have that capability. So that's an area that we're focused on. Another area that I would say we're focused on, to your point, is um, overarching agile combat employment that you uh, referenced earlier, is what is our ability to shoot, move, and scoot is a nice way to say it. But really, our adversaries have lost the American way of war for the last two decades. And the American way of warfare is we moved our equipment forward, we established a great initial staging basis, and then we moved in at a time and place of our choosing into the forward operating bases where we basically operated with relative impunity. I think at the great power competition, our adversaries are not going to give us the luxury of being able to operate in the forward areas with impunity. And so it's going to be important for us with concepts like runway agnostic capabilities or our mission sustainment teams to how can we land on very small spaces throughout the globe, coalesce our force, generate combat power, deliver effects against an adversary, return, collapse, and then go on to the next location before the adversary can hold that location accountable. And so that's very critical to our capabilities as we look forward with um, runway agnostic capabilities, as well as our mission sustainment teams those air commandos that bring all of that capability to quickly do that in a small footprint. And for you two gentlemen, it's taken a page back from our heritage that started our air commandos. And that goes back to a small operation called Operation Thursday in World War II, where Colonels uh, Cochran and Allison were tasked by General Arnold at the time to support um, Brigadier General Wingate and the British Chendits to go deep behind Japanese lines in the China-Burma-India campaign to set up airfields so that they could move around and basically harass the Japanese from behind. And it's that historical vignette that is informing our future as uh, we go forward. And then the final aspect I think that is important, that's a page out of uh, you know, um, our countering violent extremist organizations aspects is how can we as soft aviators thicken the joint force kill web? And part of integrated deterrence, in my opinion, is being able to find an adversary's targets and hold them at risk at a time and place of our choosing. And so programs like the Adaptive Airborne Enterprise and Enhanced Precision Effects will hopefully give us an opportunity to flood the zone with numerous sensors as well as potential future kinetic effects that can enable the joint force as we go forward. And in acquiring those capabilities, you're in an unusual position because you can buy things three ways, as AFSOC, through U.S. SOCOM, and through big Air Force. Is the Air Force reorientation that moves a lot of functions upward going to take any of those options off the table? No. From, from my perspective, I think the reoptimization is actually going to be an opportunity for AFSOC to compete well for those Air Force requirements. And as you notice, several of those items I talked about are about enabling the joint force, not just enabling the special operations forces. And so I know that many of our concepts are competing inside of Air Force constructs from a wargaming type perspective of how could we continue to pathfind as special operations forces and develop capabilities that the big service could then take on 
in a larger role. And so very excited for uh, that as it goes forward. And having soft airmen and air commandos being a part of those organizations will be key to our future success. By the way, it's uh, amazing. You mentioned then Colonel Allison. I got to know General Allison, and he truly was a legend of air power yeah. and in a humble, modest, and, and just towering figure. And uh, anyway, I just wanted to note what an incredible man he was. We're going to go into a little bit of a lightning round, sir, as we start running low on time. I just wanted to ask, you know, you're talking about operating forward in contested airspace, being very agile. Obviously, agile combat employment is a key element of this. You have no option but to operate forward as special operators and be far behind whatever the line may be. And the Air Force now is moving to a more unmanned front edge of that air power. Have you worked through all of concepts of operations, risks, risk mitigation factors of being that forward element behind an unmanned line, potentially a highly contested, highly kinetic front line and how you operate in that construct, especially, as you said, an electromagnetic denied MCON alpha, right? No emissions environment. You've got to get this right. Otherwise, you end up on the receiving end of our fire. How have you guys sort of worked this out in your minds, given that pretty much the only pink bodies that are going to be on the other side of that line is, is you guys and, and SOCOM? I would offer to you that that's a continuing challenge for the joint force. And while we will use unmanned and uncrewed systems to our benefit, there will still be time and places where not only special operations forces, but conventional forces will need to be in sight of threat zones. And as we go forward, it'll be how do we operate appropriately to integrate and mass at a time and place of our choosing to overwhelm the adversary's capabilities. And this is the hard part about warfare is what we cannot afford to do is allow an adversary to put dotted lines on a map and say, we're not going to operate in there. We have to figure out unique and agile ways to operate throughout the battle space, whether you're using multi-domain effects to deliver the joint effects we need against an adversary. But it does increase the risk. And so that's forcing us to have greater conversations about things like the golden hour, about things like personnel recovery or combat search and rescue. Because over the last two decades, as I discussed, we operated with relative impunity. So we got very comfortable that if somebody was injured or harmed in you know, a battle space, it was almost guaranteed that you would have medical care on objective within an hour or recovered within an hour. The future operating environment is going to challenge that. So how are we training our forces to also be able to take better care of themselves, to sustain themselves for longer periods of time, to returning to the 80s and 90s when you were talking about longer term periods that if you were down behind enemy lines, how you would evade and escape for longer periods of time. And we owe that to our airmen and our joint force to have those capabilities, but also to continue to develop the concepts of operations and the capabilities to make sure we bring everybody home. So I would say both of those is active conversation, and it's an area we're all wrestling with as we move forward. I want to ask you uh, briefly about the V-22, but also the capability that you want after that, whether it's a rotary wing, you know, as you said, you have to operate in contested airspace, vertical takeoff and landing is important, speed is important, and the V-22 right now is the unique capability that allows you to do that. Unfortunately, eight airmen died 
we're in, I think the investigation has narrowed down what the challenge is. And it looks like there are deliberations at a very high level. Obviously, you're involved in those to get the airplane back in service. What can you tell us about the investigation and where it stands right now? But equally well, importantly, what are the capabilities I, I, you want both on the helicopter replacement and even a URC-130, MC-130 pilot, even when it comes to larger tactical transports and what they look like to be able to operate in this contested airspace? Thank you for reaffirming that I am an MC-130 pilot, not a former <laughs> pilot, that, that, that my self-esteem just took a little hit there, but that's okay. Hey, first of all, the CB-22 investigations are both gone, are still ongoing, and there's a safety investigation board as privileged. They'll be used for internal safety um, mitigation, and then there's an ongoing that will follow an accident investigation board that will be more the public-facing response that we will share with the families, Congress, and the media once that one is complete. But uh, that conversation continues to go forward, and we're linked arm-in-arms with our Navy and Marine Corps teammates to make sure we're aligned as that goes forward. The requirement for the CV-22, though, has, has been longstanding since uh, Desert One or Operation Eagle Claw, that we need something with that terminal area flexibility, i.e. can land anywhere in the world, but with theater dash speeds. The V-22 is still late 80s technology. There are some ads to it that are newer technology, but it's really first generation tilt rotor. And bluntly put is it is meeting our requirements, but I would offer into the future, probably not the future requirements. Future speeds have got to increase and the cargo capacity has to increase because of how much capability we need to bring forward to the battlefield. And so I'm looking for capabilities that can operate in the, you know, the 400 to 500 knot range. I'm looking for a platform that is far greater than a CH-46 cargo compartment of which the V-22 was modeled upon. Because, you know, the V-22, while it has greater speed and technically range than the, the, the MH-47, the MH-47 carries far greater you know, capacity and capability, as well as can operate at larger density altitudes. So there's a pro-con in all of that. And as we've reaffirmed over the last two decades, is we operate not only as a joint force, but as an international and combined force. So um, having more capacity to put all of our you know, operators in where they need to is critical to the future. And so I'm very excited. We're partnering with a Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency because this is new technology. We've got to break the barriers of some uh, aerodynamic challenges to develop capabilities as it goes forward. And I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing how DARPA can you know, solve this wicked hard problem of something that can fly at the speeds that will stay with the joint force package, but also still at the end game, provide that terminal area flexibility to land on a dime. As we record this, the Special Air Warfare Symposium hosted by the Global Soft Foundation is underway. From your standpoint, what are the key takeaways from the gathering, the things you've heard that you want other people to know about? I will tell you our initial conversations with uh, retired general and chief of staff of the Air Force, General Schwartz, gave us a great vision of how we can leverage innovation. And he shared his story of how we innovated through necessity in the past and how we can develop ourselves to innovate and unleash the imagination that's inherent in our force and how we can move faster. 
Then we hosted uh, Mr. Hongo Gertz, previous uh, acquisition executive for U.S. SOCOM and previous assistant secretary of the Navy for R&E. He, he gave a great insight. He's well known as a pathfinder and how you can innovate. And then finally, great conversations from Secretary Mayor and General Fenton, giving that North Star of how we need to move forward. But the whole goal from this Special Air Warfare Symposium for the forces listening is we're in a moment of transformation. And how can we unleash those ideas that we're going to need to deliver integrated deterrence for our nation, to partner with our allies and partners? But hey, should the nation call upon us in great power competition, not only have the equipment we need, but more importantly, the mindset and the training to deliver those decisive effects that will ensure victory for our nation. And very excited that that's continuing to move forward. General Tony Bauernfeind, Commander of Air Force Special Operations Command. You're a busy man. Thanks so much for taking some time with us on the Air Power Podcast. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being great teammates. And uh, y'all have a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. And if you liked what you heard, hey, tell a friend, unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage. Thanks also to GE Aerospace for powering the entire flight. We'll be back next week.